Dotnet Rocks episode 617 with guest Scott Guthrie. Recorded live Monday, December 6th, 2010. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, by IdeaBlade, and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here's Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard, and it's Scott Guthrie, who needs no introduction. Hi, Scott. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Silverlight 5. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah, no, we we just finished up our uh, Silverlight Firestarter uh, event, which was like an all-day event. Um, it was both streamed online. We had people uh, attending in person. Uh, we had we probably over twenty or 30,000 people for the day, if you add all the online audience. And um, for people that missed it, you can actually go and, and watch all the sessions. They've all been recorded with a bunch of great tutorials. And uh, the event in general was focused on Silverlight overall, obviously, hence the name, the Silverlight Star- Firestarter. Uh, most of the content was about Silverlight 4 and, and Silverlight for Windows Phone that are already shipped. Uh, but then I used my keynote to talk about Silverlight 5 and talk about the future and kind of provide a roadmap in terms of where we're going and show off, uh, about an hour and 15 minutes of, uh, pretty cool demos. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun to see the reaction and, uh, uh, we brought down Twitter pretty much. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we were at number five or number six trending topic on Twitter for a while during the day, yeah. which uh, is kind of cool to see, and uh, a lot of good buzz. Well, it's not surprising, um, since nobody had ever talked about Silverlight 5 before, and then out of the blue, boom, there it is. And uh, the, the the whole keynote and all of that stuff uh, is available at microsoft.com slash silverlight slash future, if you missed it. Um, can you can you fill us in for those who were hiding under a rock and uh, as far as what um, what you announced? Yeah, well, uh, basically we talked about a couple of things. Um, you know, the, the plan for Silverlight Five is kind of to continue the same focus areas that we've invested over the last couple of releases. So deep investment around media, specifically kind of premium media scenarios, and then a lot of investment focused around application development, which is frankly where more most people. Uh, certainly in the .NET community are obviously using Silverlight. Uh, and so we have a bunch of great features available for both. For things like media, you know, we have hardware video decode, which kind of enables 1080p on things like netbooks. Uh, we have trick play, which is great if you've ever watched a training video and you want to speed it up. Uh, you can speed it up to say 1.5 times the speed. And what's nice is we not only speed up the video, but we also do what's called audio pitch, pitch correction so that the person speaking doesn't sound like a chipmunk, but actually sounds like a normal right. person, but just speaking just faster. Speaking uh, and then a bunch of great power management features and also remote control support to kind of enable a nice 10-foot experience. And then the application development side, which is kind of where the even more substantial feature set is coming out. And we introduced, we introduced a bunch of great improvements around data binding. Uh, you know, probably I think people's favorite feature of the event is data binding of XAML binding expressions in Visual Studio. So you can set breakpoints uh, on binding expressions. You can, uh, you know, hit them when they fail. Uh, you can kind of, you know, see in the debugger exactly what the values were and try to understand why that data binding expression didn't work. Uh, and then a bunch of great features focused really around 
uh, bringing us up to parity with WPF in terms of data binding or, or closer to parity and kind of convergence there. So things like uh, model VV model, uh, custom binding extensions are supported. Uh, things like, um, you know, uh, find accessor uh, is supported. Things like implicit data templates are supported. Uh, binding and style setters are supported and so forth. Uh, a lot of great uh, improvements around networking, uh, low latency improvements, uh, to kind of enable things like real-time trading applications to be built in Silverlight. Uh, a lot of improvements around WCF, so things like WS Trust support for security. A lot of improvements around WCF RIA services for complex types and and, and more. Uh, a lot of text and printing improvements around text clarity, uh, character and letting support, um, uh, flow layout uh, and kind of flow text support for multi-column scenarios. Vector uh, postcard printing API so you can control print jobs. Uh, new 3D API so you can actually do hardware accelerated 3D in an immediate mode graphics API for doing that. Um, pivot UI support for richer information visualization. Out of browser API support for doing things like pinvoke. So you can call Win32 APIs on managed libraries. Uh, child window support so you can actually manage multiple windows uh, within your out of browser app. And a whole bunch more, a lot of perf improvements, 64-bit support. Um, list goes on. So you, do, you watch the keynote to see some great demos of all of those things. But uh, wow. hopefully, gives you a flavor. There's a lot of stuff coming, and um, beta is not available yet. The beta will be shipped the first half of next year, uh, and then we're looking to ship the final release before the end of next year. Well, you know, I'd like to take you right back to the very first thing you talked about, which is the hardware decode. Mm-hmm. Um, now we we had 1080p. Support on the desktop, right? Yeah, we've we've actually supported 1080p support uh, with Silverlight for a while, actually. Um, so the actual you know ability to do that um, uh, from a decoding perspective and from a uh, hardware accelerated graphics perspective has been supported. What we're adding now, so so for example, like blitting 1080p video to a large screen in 1080p, we've we've supported yeah. actually since uh, I think Silverlight three. Um, right. What we're adding with Silverlight 5 is uh, hardware video decode. And so this is actually the ability to take, for example, the H.264 video content and actually decode it on the GPU of your system. So it's actually not about displaying the video. It's actually about decoding the video as it's streamed over the wire. And the right. main benefit for that is you don't, you don't really need it for, like, you know, if you have a Core 2 Duo, you can actually decode H2, you know, you can actually decode HD video in 1080p just fine. It's it's for things like laptops, low-powered yeah. uh, netbooks, where on an Atom processor, you'll t- sometimes struggle to get 1080p uh, video performance on the right. decoding side. And so you typically would step it down to, say, 720p or, or even SD. And so this basically gives you the ability to do it in hardware. Gives you a big perf win. It also kind of yeah. it, it avoids burning up the CPU. And so there's some nice power and heat uh, savings that you get out of it as well. Now, GPU support is something that you guys have um, avoided historically, isn't it? Because uh, of the cross-platform issues, and you know, you, you basically have to implement that on uh, in in hardware, which sort of makes the whole Mac versus PC versus whatever thing come into sharp focus. Uh, no, we actually have had we've actually had uh, um, GPU support in several for a couple releases now. And so we use the GPU in a variety of, of places and ways. So, for example, um, 
you know, things like deep zoom. We do, we actually do GP yeah. level compositing. Uh, we do cache composition APIs in Silverlight. Uh, I think Silverlight 3 and 4, we added that, which can take advantage I'm of GPU. I'm thinking of 3D. That's what I'm thinking of. Oh, 3D. Yeah, we haven't had yeah. three. Well, we've actually had pers- what's called perspective 3D support in, in Silverlight, uh, Silverlight 2, I think. Basically, what that does is it lets you add kind of a Z order projection API onto a control graph in Silverlight, and you get kind of that, kind of the classic ones you ever use iTunes, that kind of uh, album flip view. Uh, that's done with perspective 3D. What we're adding with Silverlight 5, though, is. Um, uh, a full intermediate mode graphics API. So that basically means you can do like kind of mesh, you can do uh, vector shaders, things like that. And so you you basically can do kind of much richer and more advanced 3D APIs, uh, 3P, 3D modeling. Um, and we'll have an API to basically let you do that. Now, this is not the same as the 3D uh, library that's in WPF. Correct. It's it's actually a little bit different. Uh, the The one in WPF today is a little bit of a higher higher level API, 3D API. Um, we've had some mixed feedback on it, uh, frankly. One of the things we added with WPF in the 3.5 time frame, so in, with .NET 3.5, SP1 actually, uh, was actually the ability to host um, direct 3D-based um, surfaces inside WPF. And what we typically see with, with WPF developers is for people doing kind of advanced 3D support, they typically drop down and they're actually using a, a direct 3D surface within their app as opposed to the original WPF 3D API that we shipped in WPF 1.0. Um, obviously, we continue to support the WPF 1.0 3D API, but um, we kind of took some of those learnings and are kind of applying them as we kind of define the Silverlight 3D support, um, which is, you know, we think people typically want actually a, a lower level 3D API uh, in that it, it kind of gives them much more power and flexibility in terms of what they do. But you can, you will be able to take this API, you'll be able to take the surfaces and uh, composite them into a 2D surface uh, and integrate them as part of uh, an overall app. And so if, if there's only one demo that you see in the keynote, definitely check out the 3D API demo. Um, it's about halfway into the, the keynote, I think. Um, as it, it kind of, it's a pretty cool scenario. And what's nice is, you know, it shows off kind of 2D, 3D controls, data binding, uh, and then some, some pretty impressive GPU acceleration. Um, and what's cool is the, the people that built it actually built the entire demo in about a week. Um, wow. So it also really kind of talks to some of the productivity that we think you'll get uh, for these types of scenarios with Silverlight 5. Does this also, does, does the 3D support work on the Mac as well? Uh, we're working on we're working on that right now. It's there are a few challenges uh, that has to do a little bit with sort of browsers on the Mac. Um, so, for example, like Safari today, uh, with the current shipping version, can't support OpenGL surfaces um, in browser. Uh, and so, you know, we're we're talking with Apple and and other browser manufacturers to uh, you know see see things that we can do there. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's something we're, we're actively working on right now. Um, I can't show you, uh, a demo of it just yet, but it is something yeah. we're working on. And we are yeah, talking about the bits cool. you showed off in the keynote. These were like alpha bits. Yeah. They, I mean, they're all real. I, yeah, all the demos we showed in the keynote were, um, uh, uh, you know, real code, checked in code. 
uh, we weren't we weren't showing any kind of prototypes. Um, it's not quite what we call beta quality. Um, you know, some features are probably at beta quality. Some features aren't. Right. Um, the uh, the 3D support is uh, still uh, probably more alpha quality, but we feel pretty confident in terms of uh, the capabilities of it. It's just you know it take a little bit more time to get it uh, baked, and then also getting the tooling support built up around it. You know, most of the features we showed in the keynote uh, last week were. Uh, focused more on the runtime functionality, and you know that typically is what we get working first, and then we need to, you know, obviously get the tools supporting it as well. Scott, do you have any plans to give us uh, programmers access to the codex? So, if we're say doing a a webcam application, we can actually, uh, you know, send send that data across the wire fairly easily without having to do a lot of low level stuff. Yeah, well, there's two aspects. You know, one thing that we've done actually, I think, since sort of like four, maybe it's even sort of like two or three, is allows you to plug in your own codec. Uh, and so we do support pluggable codecs. And so there's some scenarios where people want to do things like uh, for streaming a video or a webcam or you know, live conference like this, where people want to have their own custom wire format or codec or container format. Uh, and we do support that with stuff like today. I think what you're asking about, which is another feature that people ask for, is can we decode video and audio, or sorry, do we, can we encode audio and video on the client and, yeah. and then send it to the server for broadcast? So, uh, right. like a webcam chat. Um, it's something we're looking at, uh, and we'll certainly support in the future. Unclear exactly which release it'll show up in. But, um, but, but I think you will see that in the future. There's also been some work on the media side regarding DRM-related stuff, which I know nobody really likes all that much. But uh, yeah, you know, what's or likes to talk about? Yeah, or d- wants to talk about it. Uh, what's the story there? Well, actually, certainly four. We added. Yeah, DRM is kind of one of these things that uh, there's about 100 customers in the world that really care about, uh, or really yeah. eight customers in the world that really care about, which is the big studios. Um, Everybody else hates it. <laughs> and uh you know everyone else right. uh uh would rather didn't exist you know what we've always tried to do with silverlight is you know we have supported a really strong drm system since silverlight 2 uh it's called play ready um and uh it's studio certified uh it's generally considered probably the best drm technology on the planet uh from a security perspective what we've tried to do with with silverlight is both support it and and make everyone that wants to protect their content really happy uh, but also implement in such a way that it, it doesn't have some of the onerous aspects that consumers of DRM really dislike. You know, things like their video or audio that they purchased stopped working or lots of pop-ups or installs or, you know, things like that. And so, uh, you know, if you, if you stream, for example, like a Netflix movie using Silverlight today, uh, you know, as the pl- video is loading, you'll, you'll see a briefly a message saying, you know, acquiring content protection or acquiring content license that shows up for about two seconds as the video is loading, and then you never see it again. And, you know, assuming we've done our job right, that that is the DRM experience. You don't need to worry about it anymore. Um, and I think generally we've done a pretty good job with Silverlight in terms of making it, it seamless and really accomplishing both goals of having the studios be happy about the content protection so that they're willing to give people like Netflix and Sky and some of the other, you know, Canal Plus and some of the other big streaming providers that are using Silverlight permission to stream their content. 
but then also have the end user not notice it at all. And, you know, in terms of kind of the, the advanced features we support, in Silverlight 4, we added full what's called output protection support. Um, so not only wiring protection, but, you know, we can actually integrate with output protected devices. Um, and so, you know, a, a studio could say, you know, hey, you're allowed to stream up to, say, 720p video or let's say up to two megabits per second uh, quality of a, of a movie uh, to any machine out there, period. And then, oh, you know, if you want to go 1080p, then I'm going to require that you do out, full output protection so that the devices themselves, uh, you know, support the ability so that someone in hardware can't try to capture the stream and burn it to a DVD. Um, you know, the DRM technology is smart enough to basically support that. And, you know, a streaming provider could automatically inside the client detect, hey, is this a machine that supports full output protection? If so, go up to 1080p. If not, throttle it down to, say, 720p. But, again, not put something in front of the user's face or ask them to install something or configure anything. Just have it work. And, um, you know, for a lot of our big customers, especially ones that are, are streaming premium content, uh that that kind of capability is a big deal, but it's not something we generally go out and talk about because DRM does happen to be a, a technology term that uh, a lot of people are skeptical about. Does PlayReady also protect content that you've purchased and are keeping on your disk, as well as authorize you to watch a stream? Uh, yeah, with you know several like four, we support both what's called in-browser DRM. Uh, which basically guarantees that uh, the machine can't make a local copy of it. Uh, and then we do now support with Silverlight 4 the ability to do uh, what's called kind of download DRM or subscription-based DRM. Uh, and so, yeah, your offline DRM, actually. I think that's actually how we call it. So, yeah, if, if you want to, you, you can, um, you know, you, you can download a video and uh, store it locally and still have DRM protection. And, you know, we do technically allow you to implement multiple kind of business models. So if you want to do what's called a rental model, so you can rent it for five, you know, five days, you could do that. You could do, you know, watch once model. You could do watch X number of times model. Um, you know, it, it does support a variety of business models. You know, in general, I'd say the, the TV business is, is going through a, just a massive business model change yeah. right now. And so, you know, where it gets interesting and where I think just in general digital media gets interesting is once you can deliver all media over an HTTP IP based network, the, the business models that we've historically had around cable, around satellite, around DVD purchase or rental kind of all go out the window. And, and it, yeah. it's too early to tell whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. It certainly will be a change. And, um, you know, there'll be companies that are going to exploit that change and, and really make a lot of money. And, you know, frankly, there's going to be companies that are not going to be in a good position because of it. And, uh, based you know, on the hundred, based on the hundred dollar plus a month fees the cable company is charging me for most of the stuff that I really don't want to see anyway, I think it's a welcome change. It is. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, certainly with a lot of cable companies are, are going to be looking closely at their business models and, and, you know, for people that pay a lot of money to cable providers today, I think a lot of people are looking forward to like, Hey, I can, I can reduce that. The other po- positive though for the cable companies is going to be, you know, they have access to so much content today 
and the percentage of that content they can actually share is constricted. You know, even though it sounds like, wow, we have 300 channels on our, um, you know, on our cable boxes in some cases, uh, you know, if you imagine all of the different shows and all the different movies over the last six months that you watch, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of different shows and videos and TVs across those 300 channels. And cable providers are going to have the opportunity where they could say, hey, you know, Carl, you, you actually not only can watch a bunch of live TV, but, you know, presumably you, you could, uh, you know, watch kind of a catch-up service. And, you know, any show you missed, guess what? You can watch it now on demand. Um, you know, your PC, your phone, your tablets, uh, your TV, and your cable box. And, and that kind of ability to do kind of that type of catch-up service is, uh, is over the last six months or so. That's a big, that's a big opportunity for them as well. And so, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see. I, I think there's going to be winners and losers and it's, it's probably too, too early and too hard to pick who's who. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know, just briefly before we leave this topic, cause it's, it's fascinating to me. I, I see the cable companies as making a lot of money on consumers based on giving them stuff that they don't want to watch. You know, not just advertisements, but how, how many, you know, what percentage of shows that come across your cable do you actually watch? It's a very low percentage. And usually you have to bundle the channels together in such a way that the ones you really want to watch are only in the upper echelon, you know, that you have to pay dearly for, but you still get all the stuff that you don't want to see. So um, that the, the business model there is based on attaching, you know, ads and things that you don't want necessarily want to see and putting them in your face in the things that you do want to watch. So I think that becomes a very difficult model to maintain once people say, oh, I want to go watch that show right now, you know, and just watch that and then turn the TV off. So it's going to be a big challenge, I think, for them. Yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly going to be interesting. <laughs> Yeah, we we are we're getting into that transitory period we always talked about. It's really converging. We don't need all these different data connections. They're all serving the same stuff. Let's get down to right. one and and uh do everything from it. Hey Scott, I'm jumping back to the data side uh or the app side of Silverlight here. Just uh, off the top, what is support for 64-bit OS is really going to buy us in Silverlight? Um it's an interesting question. 64 bits, one of those, it's a topic where, especially for those of us that have kind of went through the 16 bit to 32 bit transition. Yeah. Um, it's a topic that's frankly filled with a lot of confusion at times and, and misperceptions about what it really means. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a big benefit going from 32 bit to 64 bit for the typical Silverlight app? Frankly, no. Right. Um, in the sense of, uh, you know, unless you're building an app that addresses a very large amount of memory and uses a very large amount of memory, um, there's probably not really any performance or capability improvement. You know, unlike, say, going from 16-bit to 32-bit way back, you know, 20 years ago, um, 32-bit to 64-bit for most client scenarios is not... Uh, directly applicable. I mean, there are some improvements for, you know, if you're doing medical imaging or, you know, large data set analysis, you know, very, very large data set analysis, there's big, yeah. there are improvements. Certainly for back-end systems like databases, 
web servers, yeah. things like that. Anything with large caching, there's also big improvements. But most UI applications, at least today, probably won't see a huge win out of that. The big win, though, is it basically means that if someone has configured their browser to run in 64-bit mode, then your app will work, <laughs> right. which um, is a win. Uh, most people today are running 32-bit browsers, uh, and you know that's the default, uh, partly because a lot of plugins and extensions don't work in 64-bit mode. You know, what we're doing with Silverlight 5 is just making sure, yep, Silverlight 5 will run in, in 30, 64-bit mode. So if you do happen to have someone who accesses your site with their browser configured to run in 64-bit, it'll, it'll work. Um, will it work faster? Unlikely. It might even work slower. Um, you know, one of the challenges with 64-bit in general, this is again true for all types of apps, is, um, you know, because the pointers are, are 64-bit now instead of 32-bit and things like that, you, know, you will see, uh, you know, your, your CPU cache basically gets filled up a little faster because, right. you know, you have twice the, the pointer size. Um, so, you know, you can actually see sometimes 64-bit apps run slower than 32-bit apps. But, you know, in general, I think perf-wise, it'll be about the same. The big advantage is just it'll work with all browsers. And it consumes, it, or and it'll tend to consume a bit more memory, but there's more memory to be consumed. Like these are just standard side effects of switching to 64 bit mode. But I get the idea that it's one less obstacle to running a 64 bit browser. Yep, exactly. Yep. The, uh, the other side of this, uh, in the, uh, the desk is the desktop. The outer browsers moved up another ability again. Now it's not, is it just truly full trust now, or is it still almost full trust? Uh, it's well, it, it is pretty much full trust um, in the sense of uh, well, you know, full trust is always relative, I guess. Yes. Um, you know, you're not running as an admin, so so from that perspective, I guess you know it, it is scoped. Mm -hmm. It is kind of user level permissions, uh, but. Um, you know, the ability to call Win32 APIs at user level does mean that there's there's a lot more capabilities you can take advantage of on a system. Um, so, you know, the the, 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 the scenario has certainly got bigger, um, but um, you know, it's you know, we're not uh, we're not looking to provide the ability for someone to format a disk or something like that. So, it, it is not uh, it's not admin level permissions. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at IdeaBlade. You know, IdeaBlade has nine years of tough customer experience in helping developers build modern, rich internet applications. Their flagship product, DevForce, is carefully designed to provide the data access layer lacking in Silverlight and WCF RIA services. DevForce is the only solution that supports all .NET client technologies, WPF, Windows Forms, ASP.NET, Silverlight, and now Windows Phone 7, using the same code base. DevForce consumes a variety of data sources, including the Entity Framework, Azure, and Pocos. Visit IdeaBlade.com to learn more. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Now, you mentioned pInvoke, of course, which is interesting. We sort of had uh, access to com objects in Silverlight 4. Yep. Does pInvoke mean that I can truly call into the Windows API, like if I want to handle MIDI? which I know is one of those things that never made it into the .NET framework but is in the Windows API, I could write a little tool to do that and use that in Silverlight? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it basically does mean that you can call unmanaged libraries, whether they're Win32 APIs or, um, uh, you know, you can also do it in terms of, um, uh, you know, you basically call unmanaged libraries as well, I guess. Um, and so, um, yeah, that does, I mean, that does give you a bunch of possibilities in terms of what you can yeah. do. So, yeah, you, you should be able to call pretty much uh, any non-admin API on the box and, and do capabilities with it. You know, we, we've had people that like uh, that have asked for it that are doing things like integrating with uh, medical imaging software or hardware like serial port access. And some of those right. things are exposed with COM APIs. Uh, but, um, you know, we think this gives you just a little bit more flexibility unless you do a little bit more. So if I, here's another question I had about COM access. If I created a .NET uh, DLL, an assembly, and I registered it as a COM object, and my .NET assembly did something that wasn't necessarily supported um, in Silverlight, that would be allowed, wouldn't it? If you registered your .NET object through COM interop, yeah, you should be able to invoke and call it from within Silverlight. Okay, and so also, here's the other question. Um, Creating a process, system.diagnostics.process, mm-hmm. to, to run a command line uh, tool or, or executable and then use standard in and standard output to talk to that. Is that allowed? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you'd create the process using the traditional, you know, COM or, or native Win32 way to do it, but... Um, uh, so yeah, I, I think you, I think you probably could. Now the process would run, you know, normal user. It would not, again, not run elevated or admin. Right. But, uh, um, right. yeah, those, those types of scenarios are, are possible now. That means it would have to run in the user's user folder and not out anywhere on the C drive or on any other drive. Most likely. I believe so. I'm not sure of all the drive specifics, but it means that, um, you know, again, again, you you couldn't you couldn't try to assert admin privileges, so it's secure from that perspective. Yeah, yeah. And for people that are joining the call that are are wondering, like, wow, does that mean hmm, when I visit a site, it can do this? No, it, it's actually it has to be yeah. a trusted application, which means it's running right. out of the browser, uh, and someone has explicitly granted trust to it. And we do have what's called group policy support, so uh, trusted app, you know, enterprises can optionally lock down so the trusted applications can't run. Or they can lock them down so that only trusted applications from cer- certain companies or sites can run. So there, there is a whole security model built up around it, and um, you know we're, we're making very sure that uh, uh, bad people can't do bad things with it. You know, jumping a couple of steps ahead, with these capabilities, can be rolled into a handheld, a phone-sized device. Suddenly, I see this is the next generation of the old style Windows Mobile that did all the barcode scanning and uh, um, you know network communication devices. Not so much phone centric portability, but device centric portability. Yeah, I mean, you, you'll see uh, the the event that we did last week was very much focused around Silverlight Five on the desktop, mainly because a lot of people gave us feedback at PDC about, hey, you just talked about Silverlight for phone, you know, Silverlight for desktop dead. And no, no. Uh, it definitely, uh, is not. Right. And we're doing a lot right. of work around it. So that's why we focus the Firestarter really around the desktop and Silverlight 5. Um, we certainly are adding lots of things as well, um, to Silverlight for Windows Phone. 
and to the overall Windows Phone platform. And so, you know, you will definitely see in the next release of of, the, of Windows Phone uh, a significantly enhanced uh, version of Silverlight that does have a lot of capabilities for doing some of the scenarios you just talked about. So, just because we didn't mention them at the Firestarter, it was that was more because uh, people's feedback was we talked too much about them four weeks before. Um, and uh, but you know, you'll certainly see us talk a lot more around the phone support that's being expanded uh, and the additional set of capabilities that we're providing there as well, all through Silverlight. Um, you mentioned also debugging for breakpoints on binding, on data bindings. That, that's a huge thing. In fact, um, Rocky Latka was here doing the keynote and said that was perhaps his favorite feature uh, announced at Silverlight 5. Yep. And talk a little bit about that and what kind of pain that, that really uh, takes away. Well, I think you know. I think one of the things that that in general um, people have always really liked about uh, our XAML stack, whether it's Silverlight, WPF, and so forth, has been um, our uh, the data binding capabilities within it. And I think that's really something that kind of uh, has set it apart. And, and data binding, you know, data binding is, is obviously we've had data binding in, in WinForms and ASP.NET and other frameworks. But especially with XAML, that's just, it's just a, a core part of it. It's not like an optional thing. That's really one of the core reasons why you use it. And it's incredibly rich and incredibly powerful. Um, and you can do data binding not just in the sense of data binding, you know, model objects to UI elements, but you can also do uh, commanding so that, you know, you can effectively data bind behaviors or commands uh from your UI to like a view model or a controller class as well. So it's super, super powerful. The challenge with, you know, whenever you have a data binding like system, and this is true for any framework, of course, is how do you debug it? And how do you figure out when, you know, the magic sequence to make everything work is incredibly elegant. If you mistype the sequence or get it wrong, how do you figure out what the problem is? And that's where this data binding um, uh, debugging support comes into play. And basically means that you can set a breakpoint and, you know, within your, your debugger, you know, you will see, uh, yeah, you'll see the data binding object. And just like you can with any object that you're setting a breakpoint on or, or, uh, inspecting inside the Visual Studio debugger today, you know, you can drill into the sub properties. You can see, Hey, this expression is evaluating to this or, uh, we were able to retrieve the value, but not able to set it or, you know, here's the before after, or here's the update change, or here's the parent, or here's the find accessor. And so all those standard things that, um, you know, a lot of times I say people experiment by doing kind of trial and error to figure out what the problem is. Uh, now you can just set a breakpoint, look in the debugger, and hopefully go, oh, yeah, silly me, I mistyped that, and, and spot it in a fraction of the time that it might take today. And it strikes me that data binding is one of those things that when it works, it's no big deal. And when it doesn't work, there's just been no solution. And so, well, it's been a serious point of frustration historically from all other versions of even before .NET. Um, that, but, you know, that binding has, is great when it does what it does. But getting the transparency into it has always been, a, has always been an issue. And this is just such a welcome change. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those features where uh, during the keynote, everyone just spontaneously applauded. <laughs> because it, you, know, you, you can literally hear everyone just going, yep, been there, done that. Uh, yep. Thank you uh, for fixing yeah. it. 
Hey, Scott, is there anything you haven't announced yet about Silverlight 5? You know, now that it's been a week, is there a couple more? The guys come back and say, we can get a couple more things in? Yeah, I mean, it, the, the kind of principles that we tried to use for this Firestarter event was, you know, let's show off things that are working today. Right. You know, so it needs to be running code. It needs to be checked in. And uh, that we hopefully have a, a high confidence plan around. And, you know, there will be things that will change. I mean, sure. you know, but uh, in general, that, that was kind of the starting principle that we try to use. And so, you know, there will be additional features that we will uh, add and talk about um, in the future. But, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of why we, we, we picked the the, suite, the feature set that we did uh, last week. And, you know, we, we've had a, a website where people could vote on feature suggestions. And um, we had about 21,000 feature suggestions and votes uh, on the feature website for Silverlight 5. And I think, you know, I announced in the keynote, we've implemented about 70% of them. Uh, so, you know, we've, we've always tried to stay very focused on the feature set and, and listen to customers and, you know, really make sure we're trying to prioritize the right features. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we're doing that with, with Silverlight 5. Will there be more features we'll talk about in the future? Uh, unquestionably, I'm sure there will. Uh, we're just being, a, we're being a little cautious right now. Part, part, a, so that we can, you know, save some surprises for later, but also B, yeah. try to make sure we keep that principle of, you know, let's, let's under promise and over deliver, um, yeah. as much as possible. I, and I just pulled up the Silverlight feature suggestion forum and, and there's number one, implementing Silverlight on more platforms. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there are, I mean, there are some that, uh, um, you know, it's sort of like, hey, have, you know, have Apple embrace it as their default UI. Yeah, why is it running on the iPhone? Why don't you, so, you know, convince that. the EU okay. to bundle it with every copy of Windows? I mean, it's, uh, there, there are a few suggestions that, you know, we've, we've counted as part of those 21,000 votes, but are uh, a little bit out of, uh, a little bit out of our control. Um, so, uh, you know, can't promise we're going to implement everything. Uh, but of the of all the suggestions, both the ones that are possible to implement and the ones that aren't possible to implement, I think right now we got about seventy percent of them. So uh, let's jump ship here and go over to the ASP.NET side, sure. talking about HTML5, which is of course uh, very exciting. And uh, we've been Richard and I have been sort of racking our brains for the last couple of months here, trying to figure out what you know. Visual Studio and ASP.NET controls and things will look like in an HTML5 world. Sure, I mean, well, it's it's um, it's you know, it's one of those things where HTML5 is is a collection of different technologies. So it's it's a little bit like AJAX, you know, a couple of years ago, where people weren't exactly sure what it it does, but they're confident it, it solves their problem, um, and. Uh, and then you kind of drill in and say, well, you know, what do you, what is the problem? It's like, well, this, and, and, you know, then you kind of have to tease apart a little bit the different technologies. And so, you know, there's an element of HTML5, which is, uh, you know, specifically around CSS and display. Um, you know, there's, there's an element of HTML5 around semantic markup. Uh, there's an element of HTML5 around, uh, graphics capabilities like Canvas and SVG. Um, you know, some people include concepts like uh, location APIs and and storage. As part of that, others don't. Uh, and I think just in general, there's there's uh, you know an element of HTML5 which is browsers that have faster JavaScript engines. 
and uh, faster browsers in general that let you build kind of larger, more complex apps. And so there's different elements for all those things. And you know, you're going to see us, um, you know, you're going to see us, uh, obviously both with IE9 that, that, that we've already been publicly showing, uh, and then also on the, on obviously the ACNet side and the Visual Studio yeah. side, um, do some interesting things to take advantage of those different capabilities. Um, in terms right. of, uh, you know, the most immediate plans, um, the new ASP.NET MVC3 release that's going out uh, very shortly uh, brings with it a ton of new capabilities um, across the board. And, you know, you're, you just see us starting to uh, take advantage of some HTML5 capabilities within it. You know, the default doc type for views inside uh, MVC3 apps is HTML5. Um, we're using an approach called unobtrusive JavaScript for all of our AJAX capabilities, both for AJAX helpers as well as for things like uh, uh, data binding and, and validation support for data-bound expressions. And so um, and one of the concepts within HTML5 or some, or it's really kind of a semantic is you, know, you can add what are called custom attributes to elements uh, by adding what's called a data dash prefix. It's an input type equals text, uh, data dash .NET rocks or, or whatever you want to. And anything with a data dash should basically be interpreted by uh, parsers as, hey, ignore, that's app-specific or uh, semantic-specific to the, the site that you're visiting. Um, mm-hmm. and it, But it won't trigger, for example, schema validations if you go to validate your site. They'll say, oh, yeah, this is part of the site. And so uh, what's nice about this is it's, it's kind of a, a low-tech approach that works both with new browsers, but it also works with older browsers. So IE6, for example, will just ignore those attributes as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a nice feature you can take advantage of today without um, breaking anything and without you know, limiting your, your platform reach. And so one of the things we're, we're doing that's nice in MVC3 is we use that approach to implement our what's called unobtrusive JavaScript. And what that mm-hmm. means is instead of doing any inline JavaScript inside our pages, we basically use separate JavaScript files and on page load, we look for these data dash attributes and wire up uh, all, our, all of our validation support uh, with things like, again, model binding and things like that, which are pretty core to, to MVC. And so it enables much faster page load time. It works when browsers turn off JavaScript. Uh, it makes your markup a lot cleaner, and it gives you a lot more flexibility. That's one simple example of how we're taking advantage of uh, some HTML5 capabilities with MVC3. And so, uh, you know, other things that we're doing is, you know, uh, we kind of announced about two years ago that we're kind of embraced J- jQuery, and mm-hmm. uh, with Visual Studio 2010 as well as ASP.NET MVC, we ship jQuery with all new projects. So if you create a new web forms project or a new MVC project, you'll get jQuery included as part of it. Uh, we're MVC2. We added jQuery validation support, so we we ship that library as well. Um, my team kind of in the past is, uh, this fall announced that the jQuery template, jQuery uh, globalization, the jQuery data binding plugins that were actually built by my team have been accepted as official plugins by the jQuery project. Wow. And uh, yeah, and jQuery template will actually be built into jQuery 1.5, the core library. So that's a big deal. You know, Microsoft contributing 
uh, a large library to an open source project and actually having that open source project really embrace it. And you know, jQuery is one of the largest and most popular open source projects on the planet right now. So we right. feel really good about that. Yeah, congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you'll see us use jQuery more and more within our own products and, and make it easier for developers to take advantage of it as well. And something that, when, when is the show going to go live? Tomorrow. It's going tomorrow. <laughs> Okay. Well, anyway, you'll see some other nice jQuery stuff announcements coming out shortly that I think people will appreciate. So, you know, in general, we're trying to make it a lot easier inside, uh, um, you know, inside ASP.NET apps to to use JavaScript uh, to kind of use some of the new tag semantics and um, uh, UI capabilities that, that HTML5 provides. And you know, we're also trying to do it in a way so that both you can take advantage of the bleeding edge, so to speak but also do it in a way so that uh, older browsers can support it as well. And, that's, and so you, all the things I talked about, the great thing is it will work in IE6. So uh, <laughs> not, that, you know, yeah. not, that, not that a lot of people are wild about supporting it, but no. it is something that, uh, you know, as you're building a site with broad reach, you know, it is unfortunately mm. something we still need to think about. Still, Yeah, it's still out there, no question about it. And certainly what I'm afraid of is... We're just introducing even more browsers with more features that are all different. I'm hoping that you, you guys are committed to abstracting the variations in the HTML5 flavors from us as well. We're not going to have to think about that because I'm really concerned that the different versions of HTML5 uh, are going to be different and they're going to be problematic to program against. Yeah, I mean... The, the, I think the reality is you will see differences, both both in terms of HTML5 implementations, but again, you know, also frankly, there's a lot of old browsers out there, and so, you know, it's going to be a couple years, you know, as you will have different browsers at different stages. Uh, you know, part of the reason that I think our jQuery partnership's gone well, and I'm pretty excited about it, is, you know, libraries like jQuery do a good job of abstracting the differences, right? And you know, they ship at a very fast, agile pace. And there's lots of good documentation built up around it. And, you know, and so rather than us try to spend, you know, all of our resources, you know, abstracting out those differences, we can partner with a project that's already doing that. And I think jQuery does a very good job of that. And then where you're going to see us add our value is how can we build features in ASP.NET that take advantage of that? So instead of duplicating functionality or duplicating functionality that's in another open source project, how can we embrace that project, make it easier for Microsoft developers that, you know, either want full product support or want it integrated inside our tools, you know, how do we add that value? And then, you know, take take for something like a data scenario, you know, how can we, you know, we're actually funding a new data grid uh, control as part of the jQuery UI project. And... You know, that will work with any server-side framework. Uh, it's actually being built by the jQuery UI team. We're actually just uh, uh, funding someone to quit their day job so they can work on it. But, you know, <laughs> at the same time, then we'll add a whole bunch of features into ASP.NET so that, you know, again, this, the, the client side will work with any platform. But how do we make sure that the features we add into ASP.NET, you know, make it really easy to take advantage of it from within ASP.NET? And hopefully add a ton of value for .NET developers that want to take advantage of it. I think that's a that's a great play, way to actually take advantage and leverage open source and contribute to the open source community and kind of have the the sum be greater than you know the whole of the parts, if you will. The whole be greater than the sum of the parts, or whatever that expression is. I can see MVC really helping out uh, the developer once HTML5 comes around. 
just so the way that you can swap things out and, and make it easier that way. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, uh, you know, MVC is a project that I kind of uh, personally spent a lot of time uh, playing with and uh, uh, kind of add lots of feedback to the team uh, that has to actually implement. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's, it's kind of nice in the sense of it's, it's a, it is a very clean model. Um, it's a different model. It's not for everyone. But it, it does actually, because of some of the way it's architected, you know, it will lend itself very well to working with client-side code and having a nice client-server split where, you know, when we originally came up with web forms, you know, about 98% of your code was on the server side uh, because of the, the big differences and, and, frankly, the lack of capabilities in the clients. And, you know, I do think, you know, we're adding a lot of AJAX supports at Webforms as well with the next release. So you don't have to go to NBC to take advantage of it. But uh, but if you're someone who does really want to push the boundaries of client-side JavaScript, uh, I you know, I do think you'll, you'll find that an NBC-style uh, approach, which tries not to really kind of hide or abstract things too much on the server side, but which provides a very clean approach for how you can consume that in, in a clean, abstracted way on the client side, you know, I think that will actually work very well for apps that, that do want to kind of push some of the client side capabilities pretty far. So the um, web forms has re- really, one of the strengths of web forms traditionally has been abstracting all the details of these different browsers. You know, looking through machine config, you can see where uh, the capabilities of the different browsers are named. The browsers are named, right, in in machine config and it, what they support and how they do this and how they do that. With HTML5 comes new challenges, no doubt, uh, about capabilities of browsers. And I'm wondering if we're going to be able to enjoy that same level of abstraction in the in the web forms controls uh, world that we did, uh, you know, back in the days of ASP.NET 2? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of it is, is uh, I think, a little bit the audience difference. And, um, you know, I, sometimes, you know, I, I, uh, I um, you know, sometimes I listen to people debate, uh, you know, abstractions and, you know, leaky abstractions. Or, you know, I, I've been in lots of these debates where, uh, you know, both NBC and Webforms are kind of my children, so I can, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not like on one side or the other of this sort of fun debates that break out. You know, I always find it ironic that we're always, you know, we always sort of debate abstractions and, and the value of abstractions and that, you know, we're working in a world where everything is persistent as text and, you know, we're servicing UI as angle brackets, uh, and, yeah. You know, late bound scripting languages that are working against them using object models that, uh, you know, are invented on top. And so over a protocol called HTTP with things like session state. So there's many, 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 many different abstractions, no matter what approach you take to web development. Um, I think the, the more interesting debate is what are the types of abstractions that developers want to use and what feels most natural? And there is, you know, there's a set of developers who will tell you like, don't make me write JavaScript. I don't want to have to cobble together, you know, to use their words, cobble together a little bit of this and a little bit of that and kind of duct tape a solution together. That just feels hacky. I want something where it's strongly typed. I get compile time checking and, 
you know, I want a data group control to do what I want it to do. I don't want to have to feel like I need to know what every tag element in the page looks like. And that's a totally valid thing. You know, people that poo-poo that, I think, are um, you know, overlooking the fact that for a lot of scenarios, that is totally fine. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, at the same time, you know, I think a lot of people will look at, say, an NBC approach or frankly, just even an inline page approach and say, wow, that's really hacky. I'm, you know, I don't like this. I don't like that. You don't have the helper that just does it for you. And, you know, someone come, who prefers that approach would say, no, actually, I like the fact that I know everything that's happening and I have the flexibility that I can, I can actually tap into it and I can customize it and really bring it to life. And that gives me power. It gives me control. Mm. And I, yeah. the whole standards and the whole, uh, standard based development is really surfaced to me. And so I feel, you know, really liberated. That's clean to me. That's also a very mm. valid approach. And so, you know, neither of these two kind of opposite spectrums is, is good or bad. And that's why we support too. And so you will see absolutely with web forms, our built-in controls take richer advantage of HTML5 and provide Great. a very server-based abstraction around it that does hide differences between browsers and just makes stuff work. You know, and at the same time, you'll see investments like NBC where we're right. still trying to provide abstractions, but we're doing so in a way that is also going to allow you to kind of customize things in a rich way with the knowledge of HTML, with the knowledge of CSS, and with the knowledge of JavaScript. Yeah. And... Um, you know, the great thing is it's the same good old ASP.NET under both. And so, you know, the same underlying infrastructure applies to both. We can use them for both. And, uh, you know, where possible, you're going to see us spend about 60 or 70% of our investment time on features that will work for both. Things like the new web deployment improvements we're making. Things like IS Express. Things like SQL CE. Things like... Mm. Um, EF code first and the, the, the data annotation based validation, you know, all those features we'll invest in, they work equally well and they, they will work equally well for both web forms and NBC. You know, and at the same time, you'll see us add web forms and NBC specific features, uh, as well and, and, and continue to improve the, along those lines. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm actually pretty bull, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I'm pretty bullish in terms of what the next year is going to bring for the Microsoft web development stack. Um, yeah. and, uh, yeah, I, I think we're really going to have uh, a pretty darn good offering end to end. Well, Scott, I know, uh, we could talk for hours, I know, but you're out of time. So we're going to let you go and just thank you so much for sharing uh, your time with us and, and your knowledge. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. Uh, great to be on here again. All right. And I can't wait to have you back to talk about Silverlight six and HTML 10. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, until then, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net.
For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a talk.